Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. This week's guest served over two decades in the U.S. Navy, where he was an anti-submarine warfare specialist and chief petty officer. He served in multiple American war fronts, including the Cold War standoff and the Persian Gulf crisis. He retired from the military to become a military consultant and novelist, which is where this podcast comes in. I read his novel, Sea of Shadows, and became very impressed with his prowess over the military thriller genre, and thus this interview. And if you're not familiar with this author now, you can thank me later. Welcome, Jeff Edwards. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah. And just as we we're starting this, you told me that you also are uh, an author of science fiction. So that's going to make this a, a double great interview we've got in store for everybody today. So your, your story, Sea of Shadows, is probably the most intense military thriller I've ever read. So how did you come about, first of all, becoming a writer? And then we'll get into that one there. But how did you, you end up becoming, like I said, an author? Well, it's... Uh... My father grew up during the Depression, and uh, his father died when uh, when my dad was very young. And my father basically worked from the time he could walk. He was cutting kindling and delivering firewood and just doing whatever he could to help support his family. He didn't have much in the way of a traditional childhood. So when he had children of his own and it came time to tell us bedtime stories, he didn't actually know very many stories. So he used to make up stories about a, a chocolate milk drinking bear named Oliver and his best friend, a little boy named Charlie. Now, my dad's name was Charles Oliver Edwards, and it took me years to figure out that my dad's two main characters were both named after himself. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but my father died when I was, when I was young as well. Uh, I was about seven. And uh, about a year after my father died, I was telling an Oliver the Bear story to my younger brother, and I suddenly realized I couldn't remember how it ended. And I realized if I didn't write those stories down, I was going to lose them. So I started writing down my father's Oliver the Bear stories, and that was the beginning. And I've been writing ever since. And you were how old then? I was about seven and a half, eight years old. Wow. So this has been virtually a, a lifetime of, of endeavor for yourself. Yeah, it took me quite a lot. Yes, it has. It took me, you know, another two and a half, three decades to actually write my first novel to finish my first novel. I had many, many, many false starts, but uh, I kind of knew where I wanted to go when I was about eight, seven, eight years old. Wow. And then, so you actually had, was it 20 years or, or more in the military? 23. 23 years. So how'd that fit in there? Cause you knew you wanted to become a writer, but then obviously you ended up in the, in the Navy. That also kind of a little bit ties back in with my father. Um, uh, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, I used to like to go down to the waterfront with my dad uh, and stand down there on the wharfs. And uh, Savannah is a big seaport. A lot of people don't know that. But I would see ships disappear over the horizon, you know, and I would ask my dad where they were going. And he said he didn't know. He said they could be going to Europe or Asia or, you know, just up the coast to North, you know, to North Carolina or something. He said, there's, you know, there's no way for us to know where they're going, but they're going out there. And I always wanted to go out there. So at some point after having read uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Edward L. Beach and writers of, of naval fiction and everything else, I thought it would be great if my career could somehow combine the two things that I loved, which is the sea and writing. So I went to sea to learn about the sea and to teach myself how to write. Wow. 
I guess that was that was a definite practical application of wanting to to learn what you're writing about to actually serve in the military, anti-submarine warfare, and uh, on two theaters, at least two th- multiple theaters of of wartime experience. So now on your show, I want to get right into this one here. Then we'll move. Then we'll jump over to uh, to science fiction. But on your story, I mean, there's there's a lot of realism to it, and I was I was amazed at, you know, your characters. It, it's almost like reading a, just a regular journal of of activity going on. Obviously, there's a lot of intensity connected with it, but the folks are just they're like regular folks, you know, that are in there. The the military personnel, the civilians. It's they're all like just what you'd read in a, in a newspaper article. Is there some, is there some, I guess, design to doing it like that? Well, the short answer, the, the short answer to the question is yes, there absolutely is. The slightly longer answer to the question is this. I had no desire whatsoever to write military fiction. I was writing science fiction detective stories. I had actually just finished my first one. Uh, I finished my first, uh, uh, science fiction detective novel, Dome City Blues. And, uh, and my agent was shopping it around New York. And every time my agent walked in the door with this manuscript and, and, and editors, acquisitions editors got a look at my credentials, they said, why isn't this guy writing military thrillers? He's an expert in anti-submarine warfare. It's like this guy chases submarines for a living. And that's pretty, that's pretty damn cool. Why isn't he writing about that? So my agent, who, Don Gerard, the late Don Gerard, he, he's passed away a few years ago. A lovely, lovely man. He, uh, he came to me and said, that's an excellent question. Why aren't you writing military thrillers? He said, I, I know you love them. I've seen your bookshelf. you got Edward L. Beach and Robert Louis Stevenson and Tom Clancy and, and, and Dale Brown and, and Michael D. Mercurio. He said, you got shelves full of that stuff. I know you love it. Why aren't you writing it? And I said, I don't know what I can bring to this genre that hasn't already been done before. I don't want to take something that everybody else is already doing and repeat it. I could not see how I could write anything that would compete with uh, Tom Clancy or or or, uh, uh, or James Cobb or somebody like that. So I basically said, you know, I just I don't want to go there. And uh, so my editor, uh, I'm sorry, not my editor, my agent, uh, after about a year and a half, maybe a year, year and a half of bugging me to write him a mil- to try writing a military thriller, he finally contacts me and he says, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you'll write me 10 pages of a military thriller, as God is my witness, I will never ask you for page number 11 if you don't want to write it. He said, if you want to get me off your back, just write me 10 honest pages of a military thriller. I will never ask for page number 11. So I was actually, my ship had just pulled into, I think, I always forget. It was it was United Arab Emirates. I always forget if it was Abu Dhabi or uh, or Dubai. It was one of those two places. Um and uh, I had basically 72 hours off where I didn't have to do anything. And uh, we had pulled in on a, on a Friday and I had the Friday off and I had the Saturday and Sunday off. I didn't have anything to do. And I thought, I'm just going to go sit down. I'm going to bang out 10 quick pages to shut Don up. And then I'm going to go out and buy some shawarma and, you know, and go walk around and do cool stuff like that. So I sat down to bang out 10 quick pages. And I have to tell you, I was preparing to do something in the Navy that we call sandbagging. Sandbagging is when you don't give somebody your best work, because I honestly didn't want to write a military thriller, and I was afraid that if I did good work, he was going to kind of push me into writing the rest of the story, <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. 
So I sat down to bang out 10 quick pages. And frankly, my plan was to write 10 pages of crap just to get them off my back. And, uh, and about 19 hours later, I'd worked almost completely around the clock. I finally went to bed. I was about 80 pages into the manuscript and completely in love with it. Because what I had discovered that I could do that I had never seen before was exactly the thing that you hit on that you spotted in my story, which is that I could tell a story about ordinary men and women working together to do extraordinary things. There's generally kind of a figure in, 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 in military thriller novels. I call him the guy. He's generally got perfect teeth and, and washboard abs, you know, and, and he can defuse a bomb and fly an F-18 and shoot like a sniper and fight like, like Jet Li. And I was in the Navy 23 years. I never met that guy. Uh, what I met were a lot of ordinary people who worked their butts off and sometimes, sometimes really hung their, their, their lives over the edge to accomplish the mission and, and do the things that they thought were important. So I decided to write books about those people, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really impressive. Just there, there's, no, there's no, you know, assuming anything on your characters there. You know, the captain of the, of the naval vessel, the, the CPO, who's like the, what seems to be the main character in, in um, Sea of Shadows. She's like. I mean, people, they're, they're afraid. They're like, they get hurt. They get banged up. You know, it's like, it's like real life. What would happen, you know, um, that they survived is, I mean, that's going to expect is one thing I hate is when, you know, your hero, the protagonist or whatever gets knocked off because, well, it was just his bum luck, you know, that happens, you know, well, it doesn't happen in books I want to read. So fortunately you don't have that, but there are people that you don't want to see, you know, get killed off you know, lost, but that's, that's actually, you know, that's the reality of war, but it's just, it's just amazing how, you know, you take a premise again on Sea of Shadows and you kind of wonder because of the realism, everything else that you put in there on the individuals, how much something like that could really be a facet of real life, um, international drama, you know, of what, of what you did there, you know, sometimes the stories are real, they're over the top. And like you said, you've got the, the protagonist, he can shoot, you know, sniper, he can out, outdo any, you know, uh, top notch sniper, as well as defuse a bomb, as well as run, you know, a mile and then do something and run another mile, you know, that's just like, ain't going to happen, you know, but you're going to have, you know, your characters, you know, when something happens, they get hurt real life yeah. hurt, you know, and that's, it makes a difference. So it really adds to the realism of your storytelling. Oh, thank you. It's, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to make it, you know, you said something about it almost being like a journal. And while I tried to make the story uh, self-contained and I tried to make the story work for people who've never been around the military and don't know anything about it, I very much wanted to, wanted to convey the idea that that the people out there doing this, sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes get them hurt. Sometimes they do the right thing. Sometimes they do the wrong thing. Sometimes they do the dumb thing. It's just, it's just, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I think I've seen too many movies and read too many books where the main characters are just, they're flawless. They're paragons of, of, you know, brilliance and bravery and everything else. And I don't know, the real people I served with got, they, they got scared. Sometimes you're so scared, your knees are shaking, but you step up and do the job because, you know, 
fear isn't the courage isn't the absence of fear it's the determination that some things are more important than fear that's that's a great definition there that's really really good now one thing that also your characters there I don't, did you read the book by Owen Hubbard called Final Blackout? Um, I'm about halfway done with Final Blackout, and I'm uh, and I'm loving it. Uh, that's I, I've always thought of kind of as uh, Battlefield Earth as being uh, uh, being uh, L. Ron Hubbard's masterpiece. But I have to tell you, there's there's a case to be made for the fact that even though this is not kind of an epic sci-fi novel the way that one is in terms of length and scope and grandeur and everything, but just in terms of the quality of the story and the and the and kind of the socio-political dynamics and everything else this is this is right there in the running with it yeah it's interesting how he talks about because he wrote it i mean he wrote the book before world war ii and then he did a an intro to it after world war ii and which makes it which qualified it as science fiction um because world war ii hadn't happened yet when this war took place and it's interesting, like some of these these famous military fiction writers like Greg Danalo, Harold Robbins, what they said about, and several military units um, have actually used Final Blackout as part of their uh, officer training school. Just the lieutenant, you know, just this unnamed person just called the lieutenant, yeah. you know, his his qualities and characteristics of of keeping his his men alive and and how he how he deals with that is just is, is just amazing. But it's interesting how he's like, you know, he dedicated to the men and officers with whom I served in World War II, first phase, 1941 to 1945. You know, so it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite military fiction stories. And I've read, you know, the same authors that you've, that you mentioned as well. But this is one of just, when he was, he was accused, I don't know if you read, also noticed in the intro that he wrote, he was accused of being a, a communist, a fascist. He's accused of all kinds of things because of, of how he wrote it because it was just for him the lieutenant was there his job was to keep his his men alive you yeah. know and uh, that was paramount to anything else and he didn't think too kindly of of the um the career officers you know he'd actually he also saw what happened there and he wrote quite a bit about too of, with what happened in uh, pearl harbor with mm -hmm. the uh those in charge not following not following their own policy on how to deal with situations when you've got you know negotiations happening with with hostile forces well i, I was just going to say i don't remember the exact figure but i remember reading a book i think the title was silent service and it was about the history of uh of u.s submarines at war and in the book and i've never actually independently looked up this little factoid but it sounds like it's true and i'm thinking that it probably is and with five minutes of research we could probably confirm it but the book suggested that shortly after the uh, after the outbreak of world war ii from the, uh, the u.s getting into world war ii not the not the initial hostilities and you know prior to the u.s involvement but shortly after the u.s got involved in world war ii within the first few months they had to relieve about 40 percent of their submarine skippers uh, of their submarine captains because it turns out that people who are perfect officers in peacetime and perfect administrators and trainers and everything else sometimes are not very good at actually rolling their sleeves up and getting the job done when it comes time to fight. And uh, so it's, inter it's interesting that you can have people, including admirals and generals, who built a perfectly sterling career and everything looked great on paper. And then when it comes time to actually make contact with the enemy, it all falls apart. Yeah, no, it, it's true. And that's, unfortunately, you know, 
what happened, but I'm sure it'd be very easy to, to document. You know, you're talking about the thing on, like you were obviously anti-submarine and that's one thing that, that Elwin Hubbard was as well. He was there off of uh, Fort Orchard there on, on the uh, West Coast dealing with uh, the German submarines, G German U-boats right there that were attacking and sinking ships. And that's, that never really made a whole lot of uh, popular coverage by the, the media because nobody wanted to know that the enemy was off our shores. But uh, now, people were much more comfortable with the idea that the enemy was in the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so as a, as a Lieutenant, I don't know if you saw any of the, of the, the photos that we have in that, uh, where he I, was uh, captain of a, of the, I did of a destroyer. Yep. Uh -huh. Yep. He's a 10 can sailor like me, except I was never captain. Yeah. So he was, uh, and he definitely, you know, wrote about his engagements off of, uh, you know, off, off the shore there in, in Oregon and Washington, just with, you know, with, with the, the U-boats. And um, so did you actually have then, I mean, the, the type of U-boats you talked about in your Sea of Shadows, felt those were intense. So is that the type of, is that the, the, the technology that's currently in use now? Actually, the ones that I wrote about, the uh, Type 212s and Type 214s, have actually been outpaced by newer technologies yet. Uh, the book's got a few years on it now. Um, but yeah, that's uh, there was a period of time where diesel submarines was all there were. You know, diesel, every, every Navy in the world uh, built and fought with diesel submarines and uh, that had submarines. Uh, and then uh, the U.S., you know, with the Nautilus and started building nuclear submarines. And suddenly nuclear submarines were it. If you didn't have nuclear submarines, you know, diesel submarines couldn't stay down very long. They couldn't, uh, they didn't have very long legs. They couldn't run very long. Uh, so there were all these things that were kind of against them. So diesel submarines, non-nuclear conventional submarines started to kind of become a joke. And somewhere around, I'm going to say the mid nineties, the Germans and, and well, some uh, the Germans and a couple of countries actually, uh, uh, among other than the the, the uh, Sweden, started to develop diesel submarines with many of the same technologies that were used aboard nuclear submarines, and they started to develop air independent propulsion systems and hydrogen fuel cell technology and all kinds of things. And suddenly, we found ourselves up against a generation of new diesel submarines that were far quieter than anything we had any experience with. They could run longer, run deeper, run longer, stay down longer. And it became, in some cases, almost functionally transparent, the difference between going up against a nuclear fast attack submarine and a diesel fast attack submarine. So yeah, those submarines that I wrote about in the book were cutting edge at the time. They're even more advanced than that now. There's some scary stuff out there. Well, I mean, that was plenty scary there. <laughs> they were scaring the daylights out of me. I was still active duty when I was writing about it. Wow. But obviously, then, if you're going to have that technology, those, because it was really interesting, too, how you, part of the research, you actually quoted from that one naval CPO about torpedoes, the history of torpedoes. Was that a pseudonym for yourself? That was a pseudonym for myself. I, I, um, I was wondering if that's what that was. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that David M. Hardy, yeah. Uh, the uh, in later books in the series, he actually has retired from the Navy and he's gotten his Ph.D. So he's consulting for the um, for the National Center of on Strategic Analysis or something like that later in the book, uh, later in the in the series. But um, 
there was an interesting thing as, as I was writing the book. And when I first started working on the book, that wasn't in there. And my, and my agent, after having read maybe the first third of the manuscript, he said, there's just so much cool stuff in here about torpedoes. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually show how they got to be as scary and dangerous as they are? And uh, so we started talking about that. And then we talked about uh, Bertolt Brecht and Brechtian alienation. And we talked about Michael Crichton, because Michael Crichton is, was like the master of Brechtian alienation. You'd be reading a Michael Crichton novel, and then suddenly, you know, say you're reading, uh, say, the Andromeda Strain. You're reading about all these people taking out, uh, carrying out actions and doing things, and the actions are moving forward. And then you get a two-page report right there in the manuscript on the history of Project Scoop, you know, and this and this uh, this satellite program. And then you're reading along for another chapter, and then you get a three-page uh, report about the about how certain medications diffuse uh, across the blood-brain membrane and, and things of that nature. And all of those things played into the story. And it's one of those things where if you read them, they added, they, they added a little bit of knowledge to, what you, to, to the rest of the story. And if you skipped over them entirely, the story still worked. But having them in there added this verisimilitude. It's like, wow, here's this real stuff right in the middle of this fiction novel. Isn't this kind of wild? And you can read it or not read it, depending on what your choice is. So we decided to try that because we'd never seen anybody do that in military fiction before. And that ultimately ended up kind of becoming my trademark. Uh, so it's like in, in, in every military book I've written now, there's a fiction thread and a nonfiction thread. And by the time you get to the end of the nonfiction thread, you've got all kinds of information that kind of backfills some of the technologies about the fiction thread, if you're interested and if you read them. What was really cool about that is that Sometimes in storytelling, when you try to fill in, you know, it, it'll drag a story out. If you're trying to fill in and, and provide some type of history or some context that can make it easier for you to understand what the story is, doing what you did there enabled you to do that without at all detracting from the story. It just, it actually gave another dimension, which, which gave it much more depth and much more believability to what you're actually writing. Well, thank you very much. The interesting thing is about the nonfiction chapters is, is other than the name of the person they're attributed to, which that's a pseudonym that I created for myself, like you said, other than the, than the fictional character they're attributed to, every word in there is as true as I could possibly make it. It's based on, on the best research I can do and the best sources I could lay hands on and interviews and historical documents and historical accounts and things of that nature. Well, and it, one of the interesting things is I get three flavors, it seems like, of readers, of people who kind of read uh, my military fiction. One set go, uh, uh, looks at the, at the military, at the nonfiction stuff and goes, okay, whatever, I'll read that and then move on to the next thing. And it doesn't bother them one way or the other. One set despises that part and says, I skip over those parts every time. And you know what? The story still works just fine without them. And the other set are, uh, these are people that I get emails from and they're like, can you please give me the full manuscript that you're quoting from here, that I can almost <laughs> leave the fiction part alone and just read the nonfiction part. So I have people who think it's acceptable, people who think it's the best part of the book, and people who think I should have left it out entirely. And it just depends on the attitude of the readers. So far, the people who like it seem to outnumber the people who don't like it significantly. But I just think it's interesting that some people are indifferent, some people love it, some people hate it. Yeah, it just, it just adds so much more, I guess, that that level of plausibility to your storytelling, which um, makes it all the more enjoyable to read. And then, well, thank you. 
the thing that makes it good though too is you've got that and there's some very tense you know drama that happens in there but if i have an author who i know that the situation is going to resolve at the end and ultimately the good guy is going to win which you know there's plenty of stuff to read and to experience out there where it doesn't happen that way i'm not interested in, in involving myself in that it's just if i want that i can just go read the news you know i get plenty <laughs> of that every day so if i know i'm going to get that you know there's a few points in there i got really squeamish like oh man do i really want to read this because it's just it was so intense but now that i'm familiar with you as an author and know how it's you're going to resolve it you're going to resolve it from my perspective you know nicely then i'm just total you know i'm i've got my pom-poms going full scale right now telling people to read your stuff here because it's you know it's really good and one of the things i wanted to get into is your ability to write really good action that pulls somebody along and there's this there's obviously writing technology and then i know that um in battlefield earth elwin hubbard wrote um stuff and one of our our writers and feature judges kevin j anderson when he when he uh, provided a blurb for that book talked about he just got exhausted reading the book because it was just so intense and it just it just kept on going and going and going the short chapters the short sentences they really pulled you know just a lot of action and there's i found that also in in your book as well especially near the end like i like i said you know i have a policy that when i go to bed at night i won't read because i don't I'm, it's my time to be able to just you know uh, talk about the day's events or what's going to happen in the next, you know, near future with my wife. And this time I said, look at, sorry, I'm just, I got to finish this book. I, I can't not finish it. I was just, I was so, my heart was just beating so fast just thinking about it. So how is it that you do that? Um, Cause you definitely I, do it. And well, I want thank people you listen to this for aspiring I, writers to know that there's a definite technology to writing that the long sentences, the long paragraphs, will like slow you down a little bit and you can kind of like, okay, you can use that to catch your breath. But in here, you know, you've got the short chapters, um, you've got the short sentences, the, just the high action that you did there. There's a certain way of writing. And so I'm just curious how you went about doing it. I'm assuming it was, it was intentional because you definitely had me by, you know, the, uh, the short end of the leash there pulling me along. Uh, but how you came about doing that? I think, I think to some degree, I was thinking in terms of, and this is going to sound strange, I was thinking in terms of military communications when I was doing that, which is to say that, you know, when you're on a sound powered phone circuit or a radio circuit or something like that, and nothing is happening and you're in no, your ship's in no immediate danger and you're, you're, you're peacetime steaming, you know, and, and, and nothing significant seems to be going on at that moment other than you're kind of keeping the watch and everything your communications tend to be very relaxed your sentence delivery can be slow and long and you can have uh, uh, irrelevancies built in and you know you can end up talking about the weather and the football game and the and the problem you're having with the transmission in your in your car you know and and things of that nature and it's like you're kind of you're communicating in one particular fashion. And then as soon as things start to heat up, communications become shorter and more direct and absolutely more descriptive and more accurate. They become tremendously more concise. You've got to get out the, the right amount of information as quickly as possible and then pay attention to other things. So because that's kind of the way communication happens, you know, in, in, in a warfare environment, you go from kind of this 
slow, methodically paced thing to suddenly the communication's moving very quickly. I decided to do that same kind of thing with my sentence structure. If you look in the in the chapters where there's no immediate threat and people are going through kind of routine things, the average sentence length is longer, the average length of the paragraph is longer, the chapters are still pretty short. That's kind of one of my I tend to write short chapters. I don't know why. I just kind of do. No, it's um, cool. Uh, but uh, I think it's because I never want to bore you, and I always want to give you a good place to stop uh, uh, if you need to go. You know, if you need to go uh, uh, feed the cat or, uh, or or do the laundry or something. But um, I think I, I've I've always been trying to write in such a way that you can tell from the structure of the sentences and the structure of the paragraphs how much trouble you're in. So when they start getting shorter and faster and more kind of frenetic, that's because the world is getting fat is moving faster and things are happening fast. And it just seems to work. I don't know why. It does. Well, you're mirroring real life for sure. And you're right. You don't have time for the, you know, and how's how's the family? And um, yeah. is the car still giving you problems there? Is that, you know, you had yeah. that little pole on the left side there. It's like, no, you got the torpedoes coming in right now. Yeah. You know? Suddenly, suddenly your communication amounts to check your six, check your six. And uh, so it's like, yeah, no, you end up in a different world. Yeah. And it's interesting too, some of the different slang and jargon that you use in there is different than Hollywood. And that's one thing I found very interesting. It's with a few notable exceptions. Most of the, the slang and the pro words, the code words and stuff that I use in there are pretty reflective of what actually happens in the, uh, happens in the fleet. There are a few pro words that I wanted to use, code phrases I wanted to use that are actually protected by NATO and stuff. So I had to come up with alternatives. For instance, the term sledgehammer as it gets used in the story um, and the term anvil as it gets used in the story, those are substitutes for terms that are actually the, where the term itself is protected by NATO or protected by tactical doctrine. I don't know if you noticed uh, on the back of the, uh, uh, of the, on the uh, acknowledgements page, there's a, or not the acknowledgements page, on the copyright page, there's a statement that it's been been reviewed by the Department of Defense and uh, Security Office and what have you and and cleared for publication. Every book that I write, every piece of military fiction that I write, because I maintain an active clearance and stuff, has to get cleared by DOD and, and has to get cleared by uh, by the Pentagon. So, uh, so I'm pretty careful about what I do there. And every once in a while, they'll come back and they'll say, well, this piece over here isn't technically classified, but we'd really rather you didn't say that. Can we come up with an alternative? So generally, the things that are in there, either they're spot on for how we do things in the how we do things in the military or in the Navy, or they capture the flavor, even if the details are different to protect sensitive material. I get it. No, that was I mean, that's one another thing that I observe is that that's not what they say on TV. That's not what they say in the movies. So that was. <laughs> yeah, that it's was generally not. That. So what do you write for it? Because it's you have that you write nonfiction as well as the fiction. So uh, you write the nonfiction for the, for the, is it just the Navy or is it for military in general or? At the moment, I'm actually doing, I'm actually, the consulting work that I'm doing doesn't involve uh, that kind of writing anymore. I used to write tactical publications, tactical warfare publications for mine, uh, anti-mine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. It's funny, the one of the ways that some of those doc the, those documents get written and some of that doctrine gets written is they used to do what they called ASW pizza parties, which they would bring in uh, really, really, really smart tactical thinkers on anti-submarine warfare. And they would sit down for three weeks and they would hash out, okay, 
this is we think our we think our procedures need to include this and this and this and this and this and this piece over here. Then we should do that. We should report it over here. This is how we should verify the accuracy of our sensors. This is how we, you know, th this is our alternate form of communication when our primary form of communication isn't working, whatever, all these details. And they would put them into this giant, basically massive document. And the good news is everything you wanted was in there. The bad news is it was written by 30 people and it looked like it was written by 30 people. It was an absolute mishmash of styles. So my, so my job was to come in and do what they call making it reader agnostic is the term that the Navy likes to use. My job is to make the entire tactical manual 300 pages or 400 pages or whatever it is, read like it was written by one person. So my job is to distill all these different ideas and communicate them clearly and consistently and everything else. So I spent a great deal of time writing uh, uh, tactical manuals for the Navy, mostly for anti-mine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. But like your story came up with, things change. So I imagine even what you had back then in, in the, the book you wrote with uh, Sea of Shadows, that's now totally antiquated technology too uh, in terms of um, uh, tactics for dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, the tactics that are in that book, I kind of made them up uh, just because the last thing in the world I want to do is give the bad guys, a, give a enemies of the United States a look at our playbook. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where while the details are wrong, the flavor's right. It's like anybody who knows any submarine warfare will generally look at what I've written and go, that's not how we do it. But I absolutely understand why he said it that way. And that's this gives you the right feel, even if the details are wrong. And uh, even if the details are wrong, and that's that's not an accident. But I will say this: one of the purposes of the book, one of the entire purposes of the book, is to communicate the idea that you have to be willing to throw the tactical manual out the window as soon as you realize it's not working. Uh, I, I think yeah, that was one a, captain. I forget his name right now. The, the the senior who became the senior captain. Yeah, um, Wiley. Yeah, Wiley. Unwilling. Well, he was unwilling to do that. Yeah. And, and look where it got him. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember who said it now, but someone famously said that uh, the hardest thing to do in professional sports is to walk into the halftime of a football team at the Super Bowl, walk into the walk into the locker room uh, at halftime and completely change all the strategies that got them there to begin with because they're not working today. And it's like they've you know, they spent the entire season fighting to get to this moment and now everything that they've trained themselves to do isn't working and they're going to have to play the second half as a completely different game or they're not going to win and uh one of the hardest things to do is to throw out everything that worked yesterday and last week and the week before uh but sometimes you got to do that as the as the tagline on the uh, on the book cover says sometimes the only way to survive is to change the rules yeah i mean it was you know it was a very good you know uh, demonstration of that and I realized, you know, again, based upon how Owen Hubbard wrote in his final blackout that, you know, that was something that he dealt with as well back then in, in the 40s. You know, somebody said, okay, this is, this is a procedure, we, we stick to it. And then if you're going to live, though, you can't follow those procedures if they're not working. Yeah. So um, nonfiction you're right now. So you were writing stuff for the Navy. So what type of nonfiction do you write now? Well, now I mostly write reports. And they mostly reports having to do with cybersecurity compliance for uh, for combat systems. So not nearly as interesting as what I was doing before, but uh, uh, in, in terms of the writing part, it isn't. But it's vital work, and uh, 
Oh, I mean, that's and where it's, it's at right now. Cybersecurity is absolutely yep. that where the playing field is. Yep. And moving into space, um, both my wife and I are honorary commanders of the Space Force, which they have one of their main bases here in, in Los Angeles. That's very cool. And it's, it's just amazing what's happening. We were there at the event where they unveiled uh, their new logo, and we've been to some of the different briefings. And um, it's just, I mean, that is... You know, I mean, Star Trek said it's space is the final frontier, but it really is. Whoever controls space controls the planet. Well, have have you seen the seen anything about my latest novel, The Damocles Agenda? So, what just is to it? give you a clue, yeah, the tagline is "Space is the ultimate high ground." Wow. Okay. Good. Everybody listening. So you're gonna read. You're gonna read Sea of Shadows, but now what's this? What's this other one now that I've not read that I've got to read now? It's called The Damocles Agenda. The Damocles agenda. I did see that. It's about weaponizing the International Space Station. Wow. Okay, fine. Because <laughs> they just had the thing just happened, uh, what, last week, the week before, with uh, Russia sending out and blowing up one of its uh, satellites. Yep. You know, so they say, well, it's just testing it, but it's just, you know, you, you have the various posturing that's going on and what's happening right now with the posturing with Ukraine is a it's definitely a real playing field that people need to deal with. It's what you're doing there in the cybersecurity, but also how that translates into um, into satellite cybersecurity too is crazily important. You're practically telegraphing the storyline of the Damocles agenda right now, up to and including the posturing in Ukraine and the and the satellite stuff and cybersecurity and all of it. Wow. Okay. I'm closed. I'm hooked. Okay, good. All right. So now, now we did talk briefly about Belfer. So you're, so you also, in addition to writing nonfiction and your military uh, fiction, you also write science fiction. I've not read any of your science fiction, but you had mentioned that you're familiar with Battlefield Earth. So, yep. what type of science fiction do you write? Well, the the two novels that I've written that are clearly science fiction uh, um, uh, are both kind of cyberpunk. They're uh, looks at crime and law enforcement about 50 years into the future well about 40 years into the future now and dropping um, uh yeah that uh, time's catching up with me real life's catching up with me but uh they're basically about they, they've they're kind of pseudo dystopian cyberpunk you know the rich get richer the poor get poorer new technology grafted on over old and uh the ecosystem uh continue being continually ravaged by not being properly taken care of and things like that. But right. in the end, they're basically neo-noir. They're basically noir novels with a, a science fiction cyberpunk setting. I would argue that depending on how you squint your eyes, that even though it's a military thriller, that the Damocles agenda is science fiction as well, in that it's writing about you know things that are scientifically feasible, but that haven't been done yet, and uh, applications of technologies that have not yet been seen in the real world although they exist, but they haven't been seen, you know, uh, in action in the real world and kind of how those things can alter the event, the, the possible future of humanity. So. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that because you, you mentioned Michael Crichton, he never wrote anything but science fiction, you know, and yeah. some of the other military fiction where they write these high tech warships and planes and stuff that, by definition, is science fiction. They, did, they didn't get marketed as science fiction, but they right. actually were science fiction. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it depends on, like I say, it depends on how you hold your head and squint your eyes. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, the interesting thing is, and this is kind of an odd thing as an author that I've discovered is, I've discovered that I have two completely different readerships. I have readers who think I should write science fiction all the time and leave the military stuff alone. I have readers who think I should write military fiction all the time and leave the science fiction alone. There's not a lot of crossover between my two audiences. I really thought that, uh, that you know, given the fact that that I do have some, there are certain elements of my style that carry through in everything that I write, and there are certain techniques that I use that are kind of signatures of mine. And I, I really kind of always assumed that if I hooked people in one genre, that most of the same people would go over and read the other genre. But it turns out that that's not true. Turns out that my science fiction fans are my science fiction fans and my military fans are my military fans. And there's not a lot of crossover between those two groups. Wow. Because it is interesting how a lot of times military fiction, at least the futuristic technology is science fiction, but it never gets marketed. So people don't realize it and recognize it as science fiction, even though yeah. that's what it is, near future science fiction. Yep. And a lot of times science fiction, because it's set so far into the future, could actually be military fiction, but because it's so far in the future, it's easy to keep it into the into that category of science fiction. Yeah, I I I completely agree. Yeah, the ray guns and the and the spaceships and whatnot. Okay, that's not military fiction. That's science fiction. But yet, Star Trek, yeah, is military fiction. You know, if you just yeah. break it down, but because it's so far in the future, it gets continued to be relegated as strictly science fiction. Yeah, and it's and it's also uh, it's also uh, uh, military fiction is also science fiction in the in uh, 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 when you take into account the fact that we're building ray guns, we're building we're uh, not not so much ray guns, we're building you know combat combat quality lasers, and we're building rail guns, and we're building the technologies that fifty years ago were absolute pie in the sky. Yeah, uh, or the fact that uh, uh, other than the fact that there's not a a human on board an intercontinental ballistic missile is a spacecraft, you know, yeah. it gets, you know, it, it flies a very similar path to what the first American astronaut did. You know, uh, our very first launch was the suborbital and yeah. uh, didn't even get into orbit. And, uh, but it's like, that's kind of the path that an ICBM takes. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting on that. And that's one of the things too, about Elvin Hubbard, because, you know, he had a lot of experience in the military and you've, you know, you reviewed some of the stuff. I don't, were you very familiar with his, his uh, history as a, a military officer? I actually kind of was. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, I, I know that there's a friendship between him and uh, Robert Heinlein and Heinlein wrote about him and spoke about him quite a bit. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of backed into knowledge about uh uh, L. Ron Hubbard's military career through that particular vector, but uh, yeah, I've I've kind of been aware of that for a, for a, a good long time. Yeah, and one thing they talked about was a lot of the his fellow science fiction writers back in what became known as the golden age of science fiction were themselves the research scientists, the rocket scientists. They were the ones that were like taking these concepts that were first made known in science fiction and translating that into the real world into the rockets into the um technologies which then led to what we what we're seeing now i completely the, agree um, you know some of the the photos that, that, I've, that i've got from mr hubbard when he was at a um science fiction convention in 1940 i think it was 42 
in uh, Toronto, the first Torcon, and there are the various other people in that photo with him. They were all themselves rocket scientists of the day, like Willie Lay. And mm -hmm. so it's just interesting. These were the ones who were very much like Frank Wilson, Murray Leinster. These were all top scientists of the day who were also writing science fiction. Yeah. You know, so they were both just conceiving it and writing about it. Yes. So now you read uh, Battlefield Earth. What was your thought of that one there? Because that's the, that's the book that he wrote just before launching Writers of the Future. I just think that book is a lot of fun. It's just a, it's a great deal of fun. It's like, you know, I mean, how many times in history have we seen an alien invasion story where the aliens come in, they're on the planet, we're fighting them and everything else. And at the last minute, we managed to stave off the invasion and, uh, you know, and humanity. Uh, but this is a case of humanity is utterly defeated. You know, I mean, as as Tarl famously says right in the in the opening line, man is an endangered species. It's like at that stage of the game, we're, you know, humanity are like we're like rats in the sewers. It's like we're mm -hmm. of no consequence whatsoever to the cyclos and to the uh, to the galactic community or, or empire or hegemony or whatever it is you want to call it at all. We're of zero consequence. We're not even of any consequence on our own planet and watching basically humanity rise from something approaching savagery and learn the culture and technologies of other races and and grab a foothold and climb back into ascendancy again is it's just it's just good fun and it's it's one of those things where some of the chapters you just end up cheering you know yeah it definitely it definitely did that and it was um I mean, it's definitely good. I, like your yourself. I mean, there's there's definite scenes in there where what's going to happen? It's just, I mean, it starts off on the wrong foot with humanity. Oh you yeah, know, they they got toasted, and uh, we're now a thousand. It starts off a thousand years in the future, and um, you know, taking back the planet and the whole thing, and and how the the hero Johnny considers himself the 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 last Air Force. You know, the last. He was the last person because he saw the cadets, you know, what they did there at the Air Force Academy, mm -hmm. you know, so many years ago. But again, it's, you know, you definitely get the his attitude towards the military, Hubbard's attitude towards the military in his fiction that he writes. He he very much respects the military and off and on on, on the officers, but more so on the actual, maybe the lower officers, like, you know, like he was a lieutenant, but the non-coms and that they're the ones that really are the ones that will ultimately wage the war mm -hmm. and it's their bravery it's their honesty it's their integrity that will ultimately win the day or not yep. you get that pretty loud and clear in, in his stories and i get that pretty loud and clear in your stories too well i i completely agree it's um it's funny i have served i've served under officers that you know first of all let me say this and you'll hear me use this if you read my work you'll see this metaphor more than once i believe that a good and reasonable member of the military is someone who has no desire whatsoever to fight it's like being a firefighter you know it's like being a firefighter you train to put out fires you think about putting out fires you study putting out fires you know you check your gear you keep yourself self in physical condition for it you practice it but nobody's sitting around the fire station saying gee i wish something catches on fire tonight and if they do they're not the people you want on your team right. it's like the last guy you want on your team is somebody who can't wait to reach for the holster 
It's like you want people who will do the job when the time comes and do it to the best of their ability, but they're not looking forward to it. You know, these are not people who want to go out there and, and, and pull the trigger. These are people who are willing to do it when the time comes and they're, and they're proficient at it when the time comes, but that's not a position that they want. And uh, so I write kind of a lot about that. And uh, there, even though you don't desire to go into battle, even though you don't, you know, I mean, if you're 19 and you still think you're invincible and you've, and your introduction to warfare is call of duty, you know, on, on the, on the computer, you know, on the, on, on your Xbox or whatever, maybe you think going into battle is a great idea, but once you've actually, you know, been out there and crossed swords and stuff like that, you discover that uh, uh, it ain't all it's cracked up to be. And uh, there's not a whole lot of glory in it, no matter who wins. And, uh, but if you have to go into battle, you want to follow somebody who you know is good at what they do. And I've served and I served under officers that if you have to go into battle, it's like, I want to follow that. I want to follow that person, that captain, that lieutenant, that ensign, that whoever, that commander, that person knows what in the hell they're doing and cares about their troops and cares about the ship and cares about, you know, they're not just thinking about their career. They're not thinking about their next promotion. They're thinking about what do we have to do to get the, to accomplish the mission and to endanger our people as little as possible. Those are the people we, you want to follow into, follow into battle. I was fortunate enough to serve under quite a number of those. And I was unfortunate enough to serve under more than a few who had no business in uniform. Captain Wiley, if he seems like a realistic character, it's because he's an amalgam of three or four officers that I encountered in my career that never, ever, 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 ever should have been allowed to put on a uniform. It's like uh, they were so busy playing the game of military that they didn't realize it's not a game. Yeah. Well, that's good because I, mean, I suspected that. And because one of the questions I'm going to ask you then is the, the effect of, of your experiences in the military, you know, because research is a big part of, of um, writing fiction. Good research makes it the storytelling plausible. How much do you rely upon just your own experience versus research? How do, the, how do those two play against each other? Well, when you get a chance, take a look at the acknowledgments page for Sea of Shadows and look at the laundry list of people I had to thank for helping me with that book. I knew my little corner of it pretty well. I knew who the anti-submarine warfare pieces and how I wanted to do those from a sonar technician's perspective. I knew the weapons involved and kind of how things work and the nature of submarines and everything else. But I've never been a helo pilot. There are, you know, there are many, many, many positions in that. Uh, uh, I've never been a, a fire control technician for, you know, for, for, mis for missiles and stuff. It's like there are many portions of that that fell outside of my area of expertise. So I would say that the book is the book that I wrote is 20% personal knowledge and experience and 80% research and talking to people who are smarter than I am. Well, that's good to know that that's good. And that makes sense. And anybody listening to this thing here too, that's just an important thing too. just, and another example with, with Hubbard, he wrote a, a book about the um, coast guard. It was a great story. You know, um, he just figured I can just whip it out. So he wrote it and, it didn't it didn't sell he said what the heck so then he actually went and researched and went and talked to the coast guard went and went on a you know one of their their patrol boats and saw how it worked and got you know the similar type thing where you've got the officers who were there no business you know wearing a uniform and he didn't he did his research and then he wrote the book and it became very very successful but it's just the need to 
to actually research, even if it's something that you're generally familiar with, the important to research and get the details as related, like you said, to the Hilo pilot, you saw it enough, but that doesn't mean you know actually what goes on in yep. there and all the different intricacies of that, you know, um, which is no reason to assume it'd be any less intricate than what you had with your um, anti-sub warfare that you did, you know, so it's, um, I think that's a really, that's really important. Now, you've obviously attained, you know, success as, as a writer. So any advice you've got for aspiring writers as regards to pitfalls, you would have appreciated someone's timely advice before you tripped into it. I would say the best advice that I can give to anybody other than don't give up the dream. And that's the best piece of advice that I have for anybody, because, you know, it's, it's one of those writing is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. It's one of those things where you can, you can have 3000 rejections and they don't matter as soon as you get the first acceptance. Uh, you know, that's the, that, that's the first thing. It's like keep polishing your craft and learning and everything else. But the other thing, the other thing is always, always look for people before you ever submit the, your book to an editor, before you ever show your book to an agent or anything else, get yourself a cadre of readers who can look you in the eye and tell you that your kids are ugly. I have a group, I call them my advanced readers, my advanced reader group. Some people call them beta readers. I have a group of, and the number varies. It's usually between 15 and 20 people or so that I can depend on to tell me, dude, this totally isn't working. And oh, by the way, you misspelled so-and-so. Do you realize that the spelling of that person's name changed between chapter nine and chapter 10? And this part totally didn't work for me. And I hate that character. And why in the world would X, would this, would X character do this thing over here? And because I work with people who are capable of looking me in the eye and telling me that my kids are ugly, they help me correct things that I was never going to find myself. They help me find pacing issues and character motivation issues and things like that. Get yourself a group of beta readers. Now, before you get yourself that group of beta readers, that comes later. That comes after you finish the novel, after you finish your novel, after you've taken it as far as you can get and you need people to give you honest. Before you get to that point, if you haven't finished the novel yet, you need an entirely different kind of reader. You need a reader that's gonna pat you on the back and say, good boy, keep going. And the reason is because the easiest thing in the world to do is quit halfway through a novel if you don't think it's working. And every single book I've ever written, there's been a point in the story where I went, this is the one that doesn't work. This is the one I have to throw in the trash can and start over from scratch. This is the one that's completely failing. I'm never going to get there. I'm not going to finish this novel. And if I do, it's going to be crap. I have to push through that every time. I can't be working at that stage when I'm first writing the novel and when it's kicking my butt, when the idiosyncrasies of the book are still kicking my butt. I can't be around people who are going to tell me that my kids are ugly. I need everybody to tell me that my children are the most talented little darlings that they could possibly be, which is why I show my work to very few people until I've finished a complete first draft. My wife sees it ahead of time because she's got a good sense for how to help me correct problems without breaking my spirit. Once I've finished the first draft, beat the crap out of it. Let's figure out what's wrong with it and fix it. But during that stage where I'm not sure I can finish the book, that's a, uh, uh, that's a, uh, that's when I need encouragement rather than honesty. Later on, after I've finished the book, I need brutal honesty. Tell me what doesn't work. Tell me what stinks. And uh, if it sucks, how can I make it suck less? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and luckily, I've been, uh, I've been very fortunate to build up uh, a group of kind of mostly the same people 
who are perfectly willing to tell me why a book doesn't work for them. And because of that, as and you'll see that I thank, tend to thank them in the acknowledgments page of my book, they tend to make me look like a much better writer than I actually am because they spot 6,000 things between them that I never would have spotted myself. Well, that's amazingly good advice. And I've never had that particular advice given like that before. I've always had the beta readers, but never the idea you need somebody who's going to encourage you. And then once you're done, then you go ahead and let's just start uh, picking it apart. Yep, that makes that's good it. sense. Don't, don't pick it apart till you've finished the first draft. You know, good. before then, before then you're liable to walk away. At least I am. Yeah. Well, that's good. A lot of people have walked away from that first book and never went back to it. So that's, that's very good advice. Well, we've already gone through an hour. It's amazing. I knew this would happen. I just knew it would happen. So for someone to be able to, to find out about uh, you, what would you recommend? I mean, I'm definitely recommending, which I've been saying all along throughout this, uh, this interview, Sea of Shadows, but anything else that you would recommend for someone to discover um, the works of Jeff Edwards? Well, if uh, people lean more towards science fiction, I would recommend probably either Dome City Blues or Angel City Blues. Or maybe if they just want to dabble their toes and find out what I'm like and they don't want to invest in an entire novel, uh, I wrote a short story called Postcards from the Moon, which, by the way, touches on some of the writers you talked about, including Willie Lay. But uh, it's a little piece of short fiction. It's probably the audiobook's about 30 minutes long. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's just a few thousand words. Uh, so if you want to dabble your toes and find out whether or not I'm any good, uh, uh, that, that's a good way to do it cheaply. I think you can get the uh, ebook for about 99 cents and uh, find out in 20 minutes whether or not I'm worth your time. If you're more into military fiction, I would recommend uh, basically just pick up any one of them. It's while I do write the books in a certain order and while there are certain kind of jokes and connections that will come through if you start at the beginning. Uh, uh, chronologically, my military thrillers are Sea of Shadows, The Seventh Angel, Sword of Shiva, Steel Wind, and The Damocles Agenda. But honestly, you could read the books in any order that you want to. It's not one of those things where you have to read book number two before you understand book number three. I've, I like to tell my wife, I've written every, I write every book from the theory that nobody's ever going to want to read another book by me. So I have to try to give you, uh, give you your, uh, the whole meal, you know, dessert and vegetables and everything all in one package. So every book that I've written can stand by itself. So pick up any one of those and run with it if you're interested in military fiction. Or, and this is one more thing that I like to say, which is yeah. that I don't actually recommend reading my books because I think the author is an idiot, but I do recommend buying my books because it's a great investment, you know? So just buy some, <laughs> put them on the shelf. They look really pretty. Don't bother to read them. Well, I'll take it the next step. I said, definitely, if you're going to buy it, then definitely read it because it's going to be worth your while. Well, thank and they you, find sir. you by going to jeffedwards.com? Yep. Excellent. Absolutely. And if they can't remember that, just Google Jeff Edwards. Good. I'm usually the first thing that pops up. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. It has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you.